Welcome. We're just going to be starting in just a moment. Welcome to Rockville. I think Chris has joined already. I'm on. Yeah, very good, Chris. I'm just going to give a bit of an introduction as people start to come into the studio for this live show. Uh, last week's show was incredible, and uh, this is going to be somewhat of a follow-up to it, but with the deeper information, more proofs. And by the way, Chris, uh, just so, and I'll announce this a couple times throughout the uh, the show, but all of the information has been uploaded onto the Military Analyst site on Right On You. Dot com. If you're new to the show, welcome to Right On Radio. This is a faith-based broadcast. We do talk God and politics, and uh, and our particular guest today, his his alias is Chris Wilson. We call him the military analyst. Those are not his. That is not his name. We have to protect his identity. In fact, I do not know his true identity uh, because we do need to protect his life. He would be killed for revealing a lot of the stuff that he is revealing. This goes back for decades of research uh, based on his experience in the military at very high levels with high ranks um, and his ability to research and compile, uh, you know, to really vet other researchers' uh, work, uh, and compile them, put them together in the form of, uh, of essays. Uh, and what I've been doing, because there's so many pictures and everything else, I've been putting them PDF formats, they're big files, and uploading them to write on you. Dot com. That's right on with the letter U dot com. And you can join the military analyst. It is a way to support him. There's a one time fee, which is $17. Or if you want to do ongoing support, you can do three bucks a month and just really, uh, contribute to, uh, to supporting the show and, uh, and to the military analyst in particular. Howdy there, Selah 9191. Great to see you here. Thanks for being here, everyone. And, uh, Jesse has also joined. Good day to you, Jesse. Good day, Jeff. Well, I'm excited for this show. So without further ado, why don't we bring in, oh, I got to do one more thing before we bring in the military analyst. This show is brought to you by Liberty. That's right. If you support the Canadian truckers, if you support the movements happening around the world, it is a move for liberty. It's a move for freedom. And sometimes if you want to take a move for freedom, you have to stand for it. Stop sending the jobs over to China. Stop sending your jobs all around the world. We want to protect North American products, North American jobs, and create a more well place, more well-being, natural ingredients, no caustic chemicals or anything like that. And how do you do this? Just by switching your shopping dollars away from the cabal stores, away from, you know, these evil chemicals that are killing your family slowly and go to all natural Canadian American made Canadian American jobs by visiting mylibertystand.com. That's right. If you want to take a stand for liberty, go to mylibertystand.com. Dot com and fight with your dollars. Chris, thank you for putting up with my intro. Welcome back to Right On Radio. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure. Okay. For the audience, uh, I started uh, last week with uh, MI6, which is the uh, British equivalent of our um, our external, our CIA. And their MI6 Five is the equivalent of our FBI. One's external, one's internal. So uh, with that, I covered up to about halfway through the episode. And 
What I'm going to do is do this part first, and if we have time, I'll continue with the second part of what I didn't finish last essay. Okay. Uh, this is the actual narrative that the person who's uh, requested through a mutual contact, uh, he went by the name of Jack, and this FA is called uh, Jack of the Antarctic. And this is the unpublished 1948 Antarctic War between the British and the German base uh, 211, which is also known as New Berlin, which is NEU. Uh, uh, B-E-R-L-I-N. That was in the northeast sector of Queen Maudland, which was Norwegian, that the Germans uh, claimed a right to, uh, the Third Reich, and they claimed uh, a maximum of 600,000 square kilometers between 1938 to 1939. It was known as Project Antarctica, which is German spelling as P-R-O-J-E-K, T and then Antarctica doesn't use a C, A-N-T-A-R-K-T-I-K-A. And this is the MI6 JTF, which is a joint task force operation known as Taberlin, T-A-B-E-R-L-I-N. And this is after the, uh, it's both before and after the uh, 1947 uh, U.S., U.K., Australia, and USSR military operation known as High Jump. And I included... Uh, about two dozen photos or more that the public will be able to see with uh, being uploaded to your uh, university site. And they will actually see that the Germans did truly uh, relocate to the northeast quadrant of uh, Antarctica, the northeast sector, as they have uh, normal land, which is un unlike the rest of Antarctica, which is frozen, the Germans realized that uh, a portion, the northeast quadrant, has a section which is just like uh, Iceland during uh, different times of the year where it uses thermal geysers. And so they were able to build a base, and I also have the map of where, which is from 1939, of where the uh, German U-boat commanders went under the ice caps to build a base. Okay. Germany defeated the Allied Task Force uh, in um, Operation High Jump. Uh, they attacked them with their electromagnetic uh, discrafts, which you call UFOs, but to me they're IAVs, uh, Identified Aerial Vehicles. And there were 59 dead, one vessel was sunk, uh, two were heavily damaged, and the media stated uh, that it was a research mission, uh, yet it was actually a carrier battle group. A battle group has 13 uh, warships deployed, a aircraft carrier, uh, uh, one or two battleships, one or two destroyers, uh, uh, escorts, uh, frigates, uh, one to two submarines, and a subtender. Okay. In 2006, this is the essay. I met an extraordinary man. It was a few months earlier that Nexus magazine had completed a series of three fascinating articles entitled Britain's Secret War in Antarctica. I was eagerly discussing them on my various forums when I was contacted uh, through them by a man who desperately wanted to meet me without saying why. Intrigued, I agreed, and we met up. He told me that it was not he himself who wanted to meet me, but someone else he knew, someone who was not able to contact me directly. 
I asked why, and the man said it was because his contact needs total anonymity for his safety's sake, literally. He warned me, never discuss anything about this on the phone or online. I felt nervous. I read about clandestine meetings and secret messages all the time, but this was the first time I was actually involved in one. A terrible sense of responsibility filled me, not to mention concern that I was getting way over my own depth. The likes of David Starbuck get involved in secret meetings, etc., but not me. I was scared to log on to forums or my email in case I accidentally let out any information. But then again, I didn't know very much, <clears throat> and a lot was withheld from me throughout the whole affair. This was obviously for my own protection as well as that of others. If I were ever interrogated about this business, I would not be able to tell them much more than what I'm revealing now. I agreed, and the meeting was set up at Oxford by the middleman who'd initially spoken to me. I went to our rendezvous, a small suburban, uh, suburban pub, uh, and then waited. To understand what happened next, it is important to acquaint yourself with Antarctica and some of its short but complex history, both official and also unofficial. The Earth's solar uh, south polar continent is a huge wilderness of freezing ice caps and uh, ice-covered sea, the size of Europe and the United States combined. Until the late 19th century, it was virtually unknown. Even the sea ice that surrounds the continent in a belt 100 of, hundreds of miles thick, it was only spotted by Captain Cook in 1774. And the first landing didn't take place until 1895. In the successive two decades, much of the continental interior was explored by people like Roland, which is R-O-L-R-O-A-L-D, and Amundsen, which is A-M-U-N-D-S-E-N. The first man to reach the South Pole, Ernst Shackleton, and that's S-H-A-K-L-E-T-O-N, who became obsessed with Antarctica, and the ill-fated Captain Robert Scott, one of the many explorers who made Antarctica his grave. In the early 20th century, many nations set up bases there, carrying out small-scale exploration of the various places around the continent. It is in the 1930s, after the rise of the Nazis, that official and unofficial history significantly diverges. The German Antarctic expedition of 1938 to 1939 was sent supposedly to set up a whaling station on the eastern coast in an area called New Schwabia. On the map, uh, the area around it is actually Queen Maudland, which was claimed by Norway. On landing, the region was swiftly claimed for Hitler's Nazis' Third Reich. World War II broke out, and Germany and the Allies were at loggerheads for control of the seas. As the war drew to a close and defeat loomed, Hitler and the other leaders of the Third Reich, knowing that they were war criminals, must surely have looked for into finding a safe haven. Official history states that Hitler shot himself in his bunker just before the Soviet troops arrived and his lieutenants and secretaries burned his body. But in actual fact, the evidence of that is very thin and contradictory. However, that is a long uh, story that deserves its own article. Did Hitler escape? And if so, where to? Escape was perfectly possible. I know the answer to that. He did escape. And he was helped by the British and the Americans. The SS had captured many Allied aircrafts in a hangar at their airbase very close to Berlin. They could have therefore flown Hitler in disguise over the Allied lines to a friendly harbor. 
then arranged for a submarine to meet them there and get Hitler out. History states that this would be useless because the Allies had won the Battle of the Atlantic by then and that no U-boat uh, could operate there without being sunk. But again, this is incorrect. It is true that no U-boat could carry out offensive operations in the Atlantic anymore because the ships were too well defended. But that doesn't mean a submarine trying to get somewhere secretly couldn't. In truth, it could easily. Locating and sinking a sub which attacks you is one thing. Trying to find a sub that doesn't want to be found is another matter entirely. It's pretty much impossible, in fact. It's like trying to hunt for a particular rabbit by walking along the country lanes of England with a shotgun. What's more, this is an intelligent rabbit that can hear you coming from a distance and get into its burrow long before you could get close enough to be a threat. Germany also had the new type, uh, which is known as the Electric Class XX1, the 21, besides the 23, submarine with a snort, uh, snorkel mast that was like a modern submarine. So it wouldn't even need to surface to recharge its battery and air supply. And it seems reasonable that this is the vessel Hitler would have chosen to make his escape. But where could the world's most wanted man hide? All the Reich's territories were being invaded and liberated. Where in the world did the Nazis have an outpost that was so remote, so isolated, in such an inaccessible place that nobody would be able to reach it for many years? One place, New Swabia, and that's S-W-A-B-I-A. Information that has come to light from many sources, including my own contact, reveals that the Nazis had a large military infrastructure in their Antarctic underground port of, for submarines. Some witnesses even claim the Nazis were constructing their, quote, New Berlin in Antarctica, where they placed to recover their, um, their hideaway. The Nazis would be able to continue their research into esoteric vehicle propulsion and energy sources, as well as black magic and occult powers, which they did. The war ended officially in 1945. In Europe, it was May 8th. But then less than a year later, a massive fleet of 13 ships, at least, and 4,700 sailors, uh, soldiers, and government scientists set sail for Antarctica. This was many times the number of people who had ever visited Antarctica before, and a mission called Operation High Jump cost billions of dollars. The U.S. government produced a documentary about it, and it was shown in cinemas all over the world called, quote, The Secret Land. Then I included a Google link to it. The four men and less than totally proficient actors in the two opening office scenes are the Secretary of Defense, Admiral James Forrester, and Admiral Chester Nimitz, Chief of Naval Operations during World War II. The famous polar explorer, Admiral Richard Byrd, and Admiral Richard Cruzan, and that's C-R-U-Z-A-N, who commanded one of the secondary high jump fleets. Two of those four men, Forstall and Byrd, were supposedly struck down by, quote, mental illness and suspiciously premature death after the campaign was over. What are the odds of that? When you watch the film, be aware that you are watching an official United States government production made on a commission by a selected cast and crew with an approved script and production design. This was what the government wishes the public to think happened during Operation High Jump. They're portraying the project the way they want it to be perceived. Did anyone ask some of what I think are more relevant questions? Why was a massive naval task force needed to simply set up a base and go prospecting for mineral deposits? Why couldn't a small-scale exploration 
of the kind that had been perfectly affected before manage that? What good would minerals be because mining them and transporting them out into such a hostile environment would be totally uneconomic? If there are no dangerous bacteria and viruses in Antarctica, then why do the Huskies become inoculated? Why go all the way to Antarctica for training? Because if they wanted to train all their forces in polar warfare, then there are much closer and more accessible places to do it, even with the borders of the United States like Alaska. What really happened to Admiral Byrd during that incident when his plane went missing for three hours? As self-respecting readers, I'm sure you've all worked out that the scene where Byrd and the other crew are trying to save the plane by jettisoning all non-essential equipment was not genuine live film of the incident, but a reconstruction shot afterwards in studios uh, conditions for that movie. The answer to the last question could come from a man called Captain Wilhelm Schaus, and that's W-I-L-H-E-L-M-S-H-O-U-S-H, German, who was a naval officer and researcher into the hollow earth. The theory that the earth is not solid, but hollow and contains more land inside if there's, um, here's some background. I included another link. He published on the internet what he claims is a copy of Bird's log that was sent to him. Here are some of the highlights. I'm reading from the dialogue. 1000 hours. We're crossing over the small mountain range and still processing northward as best can be ascertained. Beyond the mountain range is what appears to be a valley with small river or stream running through the center portion. There should be no green valley below, exclamation point. Something is definitely wrong and abnormal here. We should be over ice and snow. To the port side are great forests growing over on the mountain slopes. Our navigation instruments are still spinning. The gyroscope is oscillating back and forth, exclamation. 10.05 hours. I alter altitude to 1,400 feet and execute a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. It is green with either moss or a type of tight-knit grass. The light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn, and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. It appears to be an elephant. No, it looks more like a mammoth. This is incredible, yet there it is. Decrease altitude to 1,000 feet and take binoculars to better examine the animal. It is confirmed. It is definitely a mammoth-like animal. Report this to the base camp. Next log, 10.30 hours, encountering more rolling green hills now. The external temperature indicates, reads 74 degrees Fahrenheit. Next log, 11.30 hours. My God, all our port and starboard wings are strange types of aircraft. They're closing rapidly alongside. They are disc-shaped and have a radiant quality to them. They're close enough now to see the markings of them. It's a type of swastika. 11.35 hours. Our radio crackles and a voice comes through in English. What appears to be is a slight Nordic or Germanic accent. The message is, welcome, Admiral, to our domain. We shall land you in exactly seven minutes. Relax, Admiral. You are in good hands. I note that the engine of our plane has stopped running. The aircraft is under some strange control and is now turning itself. The controls are useless. We begin the landing process now. 11.45 hours. I am making a hasty last entry in the flight log. Several men are approaching on foot toward our aircraft. They are tall with blonde hair. In the distance is a large shimmering city pulsating with rainbow hues of color. 
I do not know what is going on and going to happen now, but I see no signs of weapons on the, those approaching. I hear now a voice ordering me by name to open the cargo door. I comply. The lock continues, relating that Bird was escorted by UFO-like craft called Flying Wheels to a beautiful city where he was told by a wise and enigmatic individual that he had accidentally flown through the polar orifice into the inner earth. He was told that the lords of the inner earth wanted him to deliver a message to the leaders of the surface world, that nuclear power and weapons were dangerous and must never be used under any circumstances. When Admiral Byrd delivered this message, uh, whether, whether he delivered the message or not is unknown, but it is odd that Byrd was sectioned in a psychiatric hospital soon after Operation High Jump, where he spent most of his remaining life. In 1949, Admiral Forrester was also declared insane and supposedly committed suicide by jumping out of an upstairs window of a psychiatric ward at Bethesda Naval Hospital, Maryland. Even if there is such a thing as a coincidence, could this really be one? I think Operation High Jump's true mission was very different from what the official history tells us it was. I think the task force was sent in together with secret missions from Britain and possibly other formed allied nations for another reason altogether, and the official story was smokescreen. Their primary goal was to take out the Nazis in New Swabia and arrest or kill Hitler. Depending on whether Byrd's supposed secret log is true, or true to whatever significant degree, High Jump could be a push to reach the city mentioned in the log and conquer or destroy it. Unless Byrd's secret log was disinformation of some kind, to shadow another secret operation that was really going on, and maybe it was not American. The British part of this secret Southern war has been documented in the Nexus article that was sent to me uh, off on this journey, and it can be read online here. I included that link. It's biblioescapades.net, uh, which is uh, one of the best for alternative history. According to the author, James Robert, Britain's own contribution to bring down the Nazi regime in Antarctica is overlooked even by clandestine histories. But Britain was military active in Antarctica throughout World War II, before the U.S. and the Russians. They were motivated not only to destroy the enemy and to end the war, but to gain in some Nazi high technology that had been so far denied them because the Americans and the Soviets had so far captured all the Nazi scientists and equipment. The article relates the testimony of a former SAS Special Forces operative who was redeployed from the post-war troubles in Palestine to the Falkland Islands to undergo training for a secret mission for which he is not pre-briefed. He was flown with a small unit of other commandos in New Swabia and found the Nazi base. Nearly everyone there had been killed by polar men, quote. These seem to be Bigfoot-like creatures, which the survivors said are the products of a Nazi genetic experiment. Although my own context says otherwise, he claims that they are indigenous natural species. I disagree. They were hybrids. The commandos traveled down a long tunnel and find a huge artificial cavern which served as a city and base, as well as a U-boat port. They plan to demolish the installation with explosives, but the attack goes wrong and they have to fight their own way out. Only three of the ten men survive, and they are warned never to talk about what happened. This means that they will receive neither recognition for their endeavors, nor any memorial for those that never made it home. 
The soldiers report that after the war, the RAF continued to fly over to Swabia for many years, supposedly to find a place for new British bases. But one can't help but wonder, does this mean that the Nazi president in Antarctica remained for many years after the war officially ended? According to my own contact, it most certainly did. The article also mentions the odd behavior of the Nazi submarine fleet in the final months of the war and just afterwards. Boats were captured or surrendered in unusual locations, carrying unusual cargoes, and sometimes their crews had unusual tales to tell. One boat was caught near Singapore trying to, uh, trying to transit the Straits of Malacca. It was loaded up with a cargo of mercury. One wonders what the mercury was for until you read the strange stories that the Nazis had built a mercury-powered aircraft. And how much did Rudolf Hess know about Antarctica? Hess surrendered himself to the British in 1941 after flying solo to the coast of Scotland, demanding a parley with his friend, the Duke of Hamilton. The two men had been exchanging letters for some time, and Hess wanted to meet him face to face. His demand was rejected, and Hess was in prison for the rest of his life. He died in 1987. During his long incarceration, he was debriefed and interrogated thoroughly by British intelligence, and the minutes of that interrogation are still top secret and are likely to remain so indefinitely. What did he tell the people about New Swabia? What secrets did the Nazis who committed suicide or escaped take with them to their graves? Other Nazis, too, were captured and had their brains picked through. It's very unlikely that Britain didn't learn an awful lot about the Nazi presence in Antarctica, probably in time to use that intelligence in their secret Antarctica campaign. Admiral Karl Donitz might be the key figure because he was both the commander-in-chief of the submarine fleet and later Hitler's successor to the remainder of the Third Reich, giving him complete authority, the perfect combination to realize the escape plan. After his trial at Nuremberg, Donitz got off surprisingly light, a mere 10 years in jail. The official story is that the Nimitz stood up for him because the Americans borrowed his Wolfpack submarine tactics to defeat Japan in the Pacific. But this doesn't make sense. Donix didn't give the U.S. Navy the plans of his own free will. There had to be more. Did Donix do a deal with his prosecutors? Information in exchange for leniency? After the war, the intrigue continues right up until 1961 when the Antarctic Treaty was signed. This turned the continent into a world's largest nature reserve and an enormous no-man's land. Keep in mind, uh, Jeff, that when that treaty was signed in 1961, that it stated that no country could own land in Antarctica. But what the public doesn't know is it didn't exclude corporations. Six corporations, world corporations, own Antarctica outright. Onward. And, and of course, Before then, exactly what they do. I'm telling you, that, that, that's that's how governments have gotten around almost everything, by doing a corporate entity. I'm so glad you brought that up, Chris. That's an important point for everyone to know. Uh, and I just want to make one other note before you go onward, Chris. Um, listen, folks, uh, this is real history. Uh, the evidence is there. Chris has compiled it all. There's real photographs. They're not doctored. And uh, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, you need to understand the reality of our past. And I just want to uh, say that and continue on, please, Chris. 
Before then, there are stories of firmer skirmishes between the rival Cold War powers on the continent. Hideous rumors are circulating about nuclear weapons testing there and even deadly biological agents. Nuclear testing, de- uh, Jeff, was done in 1958 by the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, onward. Okay, about nuclear weapons testing there and even deadly biological agents. But it did even go, it uh, still go on, but did it even go still on in the post-war treaty years? The answer is yes. The article shows a picture of something nicknamed Black Ray, quotation marks, because of its appearance, a black line across the sky. I hope my contact would be enabled to enlighten me on these questions, and on some of them he did. He turned up exactly at on time at 7 p.m. He told me to call him Jack, but that was not his real name. He wouldn't give me any personal details about himself. He had a younger woman with him at the time in her 40s or 50s. This might have been a daughter, a friend, or young partner. I don't know because he never introduced us. She just left the pub soon after they had arrived, and I never saw her again until she came back just when Jack was ready to leave at 10 p.m. Jack looks about the right age to have been a young man in the 1940s. He said he joined an infantry regiment and took part in the invasion of Europe in 1945 and served in Germany after the end of the war. He had always been non-commissioned, and in a pang of prejudice, I thought he didn't mean posh enough to have been an officer. But he wouldn't tell me the name of his outfit or what ranks he had been. He was dressed smartly and was uh, totally with it. He was amicable and outgoing as well, but he seemed to be a a bit over-exuberant, as if he were covering up a feeling of being nervous and insecure. Well, I guess that's understandable considering what he was doing. He told me bluntly that he was breaking the Official Secrets Act, that's Great Britain, and uh, could spend the rest of his life in jail, at best if I blew his cover. He also said that he'd received a death threat soon after returning to England from Antarctica. Many other veterans of the Antarctic War have had the same treatment he's got. But he said that he desperately needed to tell someone what he knew. He said that he'd lived with this secret so long that he sometimes questioned whether it had all been a dream. The world we live in, quote, is just a cover story for so much more, exclamation point. I can't go on with my life unless I hear myself say these things to someone who will listen and take them seriously, end of quote. I think he was doing this for his own personal peace of mind rather than to get the truth out to the public. Having said all this, Jack then changed the tack a bit and started talking about completely unrelated things. He drank a couple of pints of bitter, that's beer, and chatted about sport. The weather and other small talk. In the end, I had to prompt him to get back onto the subject of our meeting. As if I'd opened floodgates, loads of stuff poured out of him until I was a bit in information overload. Unfortunately, he forbade me from taking notes. Sometimes I would ask him a question and he would answer in great details, but at other times he just smiled and rolled his eyes and didn't say anything. He did this a couple of times instead of saying, sorry, I don't want to talk about that. A gesture that I learned to recognize. I also asked him about Admiral Byrd and what really happened to him. Jack just answered, he was less crazy than the doctors who committed him. And that was the end of the subject. He also told me about Antarctica, that he'd taken part in operations to round up renegade Nazis in places 
you wouldn't find on the map. I asked him what he meant by that, and he said, there's places in the world that, quote, the man does not want us to know about, end of quote. Jack also told me that the other things besides what took place in Antarctica, he said there were more secret military actions in Europe after World War II officially ended, and I've mentioned some of those. He told part in raids against Nazi safe houses in Germany where many men were killed and wounded. All this was unreported by the press, and he was ordered never to talk about it after their defeat. The staunchest Nazis formed paramilitary guerrilla outfits led by several former SS officers, and they spread fear and chaos uh, throughout Germany in the immediate post-war years. They were called the Wolf Pack. He described how this unit had assaulted a secret German base on the coast of New Schwabiland. He stated very clearly that this was the season after Operation High Jump. In other words, the end of 1947 to early 1948. But they were also there in 1940, uh, early 46. There were several German centers there, including an enormous civilian installation under construction. That was virtually a city, a lot of architecture that was based on pure Nazi symbolism. It was the holy city that Hitler had always wanted to build as a capital of New Germany. The Nazis had planned to regroup and renew their strength in Antarctica before launching another war a few years after their defeat in Europe. Hitler was in Antarctica at the time, but Jack doesn't know if he was captured, killed, or what became of him. He said that most of these places are still standing and a few are in use by the modern military. He told me that he'd heard how a few years ago some Antarctic explorers had come across a piece of land covered in burnt-out and abandoned 1940s tanks, which made him feel very vindicated because it was a confirmation of his own memories. I do have photographs of that on the other laptop. A huge task force made up of joint British and American armored cavalry divisions had assaulted several German strongholds in Antarctica, and the resulting tank battle had been as big as the ones in Europe two years before. The explorers concerned had been arrested by the U.S. military in order not to tell anyone of what they'd found. He said, quote, if you know where to look, you can find the U-boat base we took. It's a massive complex completely underground. It's got a full-size enclosed harbor that you can only access from underwater. It's entered to an artificial cavern 50 feet below the sea. It's a half mile wide and 200 feet deep from top to bottom. The U-boats we found there were not only the standard ones, but those used to sink ships in the Atlantic. There were also lots of the new type of XX-1s, that's the Electric Class 21 and 23, and a secret nuclear-powered one, too. If the Germans had developed them a couple years earlier, the Battle of the Atlantic would have been lost in days, and with it, the whole war. He estimates that at least 1,700 British troops were killed in the Antarctic campaign, that he knows about, and there may have been more that he never knew about. This wasn't like any other wars, quote. This was a war never that never officially took place. We weren't allowed to even mention it to the other men who served there when we got back to England. The newspapers ignored it. If they found out, we didn't know how many casualties another unit had suffered. If you asked them, they pretend they didn't know what you were talking about. I think some of them didn't even have to pretend. They actually ended up believing that it never happened. From what Jack said, it sounds to me the various operations in Antarctica 
were very compartmentalized and the two battles could take place with none of the combatants of one knowing about the other. This was confirmed by him during our second meeting. I saw Jack again a few weeks ago. I was once more contacted by the middleman and I met Jack again, this time at a different Oxford pub. But it was once again a small place in a residential area. A pub I don't normally visit and so it was unlikely to meet anyone I knew. It was a nice to see him again, and he's looking healthy. The same lady accompanied him and left us to speak. He told me that he understood if I had a hard time processing his information and didn't mind if I didn't believe every one of his words. He also gave me permission to write about what he had said on HPANWO. That must have been a, a British or a European uh, uh, station. <coughs> Excuse me. I had listed a few questions that had arisen since his last interview. Someone on Dark Conspiracy Forum, the only place Jack initially permitted me to publish his testimony, asked me how a tank battle could take place in Antarctica. The World War II tanks were not designed for such cold operations and conditions, and their diesel fuel would freeze. Indeed, this happened even in Europe during the Russian campaign. Jack replied that the vehicles were all adapted the vehicles his own unit used were specialized polar transports. The cost of building these vehicles and adapting an entire tank division must have been astronomical. I also did something I neglected to do at our first meeting. I asked him what he knew about the special forces operation recounted in the Nexus article. He said he knew nothing about it, and this was often the case in the compartmentalized war that was fought in Antarctica. For a while, I actually began to wonder if Jack was the same person as James Roberts' contact, but I doubt this, seeing as Roberts has confirmed that his own contact had passed away at the time he wrote the article. But Jack told me that Roberts is wrong when he says that all the boys are dead now. Jack knows of at least two other Antarctic soldiers still alive at that time, and there are probably many more he's not aware of. I read about Admiral Byrd's log since 2006, and wanted to know how much of it was true. Jack chuckled and said it was both true and not true. Bird had indeed visited a city, but it was not a city of the inner earth. He doesn't know for sure, but he suspects that Bird landed at one of the Nazi bases he saw and met the personnel there, possibly even Hitler himself. He thought that Bird's log was probably adapted from a real document, but the transfer had sexed it up with some of his own flair. But then he shrugged and added, quote, anything is possible. I can't say for sure there is no inner earth and Crystal City. End of quote. The Yanks went down there to make sure they weren't just after Hitler. They were there after some kind of valid materials, and it wasn't coal. End of quote. Unfortunately, Jack has never encountered flying saucers, man-made crafts, or otherwise. He had heard rumors from other men. However, he seemed reluctant to discuss that bit. I put it to him that maybe Bird had passed through a stargate or had some telepathic trance. Jack, to my surprise, took the notion seriously. He was in high spirits. He soon changed the subject to more casual matters, and we even had a game of dominoes. He bade me a warm farewell when his lady friend returned to take him home. It was good to see Jack again. I hope I've helped uh, him come to terms with experiences from the early years of his long life. He's taken an interest in all conspiracy, 
conspiratorial matters throughout his life, but he has no desire to be a public whistleblower. I'm still not sure what to make of this, his information. It is quite incredible and sounds so much more disturbing when I hear it from him directly rather than just from some web page. I'm now looking further on information to corroborate his story, and I'll let you know if I come across any. To begin with, this interview of Richard Hoagland on C2C is very interesting, if it is a little dated. I included that link. He mentions Lake Vostok, the huge body of fresh liquid water under the East Antarctic ice cap. It has probably been sealed for 30 to 14 million years. So it's anyone's guess what we'll find down there. It's 3,000 feet deep and has an area the size of Northern Ireland. So there's plenty of room for the cities Richards talks about. I heard before listening to this that the new Jet Propulsion Laboratory exploration he mentions has just been canceled. Why? And if the medevac patients are all ill with the same condition, it is from one of the biowarfare weapons tested there during the 1960s. This is more likely than Richard's scenario in my view. Nevertheless, the possibility of that being a cover story endures. So I finished that section. Let's check the time. We've uh, It's been 41 minutes. Uh, I can go into the, the second part of the first section that I started last week. We're at the part where uh, at, two, at the top of the hour, though I have a meeting scheduled right at the top of the hour. Just uh, if you think you can get it done, then we can do it. Uh, if not, we can just. Uh, oh, okay. I had mentioned to you that we needed more than just one hour, but uh, apparently not today. Yeah, I, All right. Um, I apologize. That's fine. Why don't we open it up for questions then, and I'll continue next time. All right, that sounds like a great idea. So I'm going to turn on the uh, call in. If you have some questions, you can now call in and ask the military analysts some questions, but I'd like to stay on topic of what we've been covering today, if at all possible. So the phone lines are open. Feel free to call in and ask the military analyst a question. Do, 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 do. If not, then I'll just continue reading. I mean, if people, I don't know how many people are reading, only you know, and watching. Um, well, I don't know how many people all right, are well, along with the essays, but the essays were posted on Right On You, and quite a few people have uh, have opted into that information. And by the way, on that note, uh, on rightonyou.com, that's right on with the letter U.com, click the military analyst, you can help support it. Uh, I've put up Five essays today, and I will have at least another five up there, uh, all categorized, and, and you can actually download them and have your own Intel files as well. So, uh, you know, please do go there to writeonyou.com and join and support the military analyst, and we have our first caller coming in, Chris. I just sent you the invite, okay. Mike. You can click on it, and you should be able to come into the studio. All right. Uh, just that's your. Just waiting for the caller to come in. I sent him the invite. So there were a lot of questions in the chat. I'm not sure why people aren't asking them. Like, how do people stay warm there? And what about this Crystal City? Ah, there was a couple very interesting things that were mentioned here today. 
All right. Well, Crystal City is a separate subject, but basically what the um, the differentiation is that there is an inner earth. Our earth is not solid. It does not have a nickel and iron core. Uh, it does not have a mantle. It has a surface, which we are on the uh, convex portion, and then the concave portion is where inner earth lies, and it roughly ranges from 600 miles to essentially uh, uh, 1,500 miles possibly 1,200. Uh, there are openings at both portals at each pole. Uh, the vortexes are approximately 900 to uh, 1,200 uh, kilometers across and uh, entrances uh, access to both. The Germans did find the southern one because they got the information from uh, the uh, splinter group from the uh, Tibetans uh, when Himmler, Heinrich Himmler sent uh, expeditions to Tibet and Nepal and they were able to uh, determine that, and with a splinter group, uh, it was called the um, chapter of the Green Hats, and there was one that was chapter of the uh, Yellow Hats, that they were able, and one, and one group went back to Germany to help uh, Hitler uh, be able to uh, decode messages that he'd gotten from Aldebaran, as well as, because uh, it came in two ancient languages. It uh, came when um, uh, Sanskrit was one, and I think it was uh, Archaic Latin. Anyway, the point is that uh, they were able to determine that uh, there was an existing uh, entrance into inner earth through the poles, through the uh, Tibetan monks that was a splinter group that broke off from the traditional monks and actually helped Hitler during the war. And that's how they found uh, the entrance. And then uh, I sent included maps so you can see a map from 1939 of where uh, it directs the uh, U-boat commanders at the depth, longitude, uh, distance, and how to change at each to get to the actual inner uh, opening of, uh, from the southern portal. And, um, the new, uh, Reich that he was uh, creating where they took 25,000 from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Belarus. Uh, men Wait, you got somebody there? Yeah, Debbie in Italy has just joined. Uh, Debbie, just uh, just mute your microphone while Chris is finishing his thought, then we'll bring you in. Okay, point being is that uh, those did make it to inner Earth, and so did uh, 100 uh, electric class X uh, 21 and 23, they're Roman numerals, made it to inner Earth. And that's what uh, the United States and Great Britain were trying to stop at the time. Yet at the same time, they were also... Uh, portions were backing Hitler and helped him escape to Argentina, where he lived for the remainder of his life and then came into the United States later. Okay, let your person talk. Hi, Chris. I Hi there. I kind of have a two-part question. One of them has to do with the inner earth. Is it, I mean, I'm picturing like a void, just a huge empty void or... You know, what does it look like? How do you get around? What is it? And then part two, you mentioned Crystal City. I grew up right outside of D.C., and I know that there's a Crystal City across from the bridge in Virginia. Is that the duality Crystal City? You know how there's always sort of two Zions, two Emerald Cities. So is, is Crystal City, Virginia, related to the Crystal City in Antarctica? I suspect so, but I'll have to get back to you on that. On the first part of your question, uh, there's always 
I'd have to go into an explanation at another date of uh, basically how planets are formed, but it works this way, is that every single planet, there are three permanent bodies in the universe and three temporary. You have stars, planets, and moons that are permanent bodies. You have asteroids, meteors, and comets, which are non-permanent. Okay, so uh, every single planet that the creator has made has an inner sun, which is a plasma sun. And it's a creates a uh, plasma is a fourth element of uh, uh, basically physics and and uh, the elemental sphere is that you have uh, liquid solid. You have solid liquid and gas. But plasma is the state of matter that Nikola, Nikola Tesla and a dozen other scientists knew in the uh, 1880s to 1890s that it's oh. a fourth state of matter and it oh. exists between solid and liquid. Point is that uh, the creator made every planet with an inner sun, and that is plasma. So it's not large. It's a small sphere, but it's a constant 74 to 76 degrees inside of what we call inner Earth. Uh, there have been several that have made it to inner earth and reported it. And one is called the smoky God, uh, which you can read. Uh, he was Swedish. Uh, the point is everything in inner earth, nothing in life ever goes extinct on the surface world. We call it an extinction, but they live inside of inner earth. We're talking everything from dinosaurs to, uh, all the, uh, um, uh, uh, Mammoths, uh, woolly mammoths, uh, mastodons, other life forms, because those were vegetarians. And there are different races inside of inner earth. There are giants of uh, 12 to 14 feet tall uh, that were exposed by the, the uh, Norwegian uh, Swedish man that found it in uh, 1890 when he took his father uh, into inner earth. When he sailed up to the North Pole and saw that there was there was not only land at the North Pole, but there was an open vortex and the water was fresh water. Fresh water comes from inner earth. And that's why icebergs are always fresh water. They basically, the fresh water comes out of the ocean. It freezes. And that's how the icebergs always come from the north to the south, never from the south. So inside of inner earth, the, the uh, amount of land and water is approximately uh, controversed, that polarized. It's we are uh, 28% land and 72% water, whereas internally it is approximately 75% land and uh, 25% water. However, that water is all fresh water, and uh, in inner Earth, uh, because there are no uh, diseases, there's no wars, conflicts, uh, health, everything grows much, much larger. Within so plants and uh, animals, even humans. So I'll have to uh, um, send an essay on, on inner earth to uh, to Jeff, and he could get it posted so you can read because I have several on it. That'd be. I hope that's answered a portion of your question. It, it gives me at least a visual. Thank you so much. Actually, that was a what really is your name? Awesome questions and really awesome answers. Uh, uh, I'll just make one addendum to that. Uh, Chris, you had mentioned the dinosaurs. Uh, uh, my research shows me that the dinosaurs were actually dragons. Well, um, there's more than that. Dinosaurs did exist, but they didn't originate on Earth. They were brought by reptilians probably 500,000 years ago. But uh, that's another issue. 
Um, while we're on in dragons a, a, a and serpent related question, I, I, and I don't expect you to go to a full explanation, but uh, some of the research that I've seen and some of the theories, I would say, uh, and just theories, I'm not saying I agree with it, uh, are that the Garden of Eden was actually in inner earth, and when they were banished from the garden, they were banished to the surface. Have you run into any of that? That is one possibility. Uh, the Garden of Eden, if I bring on uh, Rosette Delacroix, she is an expert on this. She's uh, very, very religious and uh, uh, Christian, and the point is that uh, I've researched Atlantis, and I consider myself close to a near expert, and there were two actual Atlantises. Uh, during different times. Atlantis, I believe, was approximately a minimum of 500,000 years for uh, lifespan or, or, or not uh, for uh, endurance or as possibly 1.5 million, but it was a long time. As our planet is, what I've researched, is 19.6 billion years old. So uh, Atlantis, uh, as far as uh, uh, where the Garden of Eden, uh, actually that would be, at the one, the most truest location would be where the North Pole is because these, um, Freemasons, which are demonic, okay, they worship the, uh, the West, East, and South, but never the North because that's true Christian. And if you notice, uh, in at, when you look at night, there's one star that never moves, the Polaris in the Northern Hemisphere. And that's because, uh, it has to do with uh, what we've been taught, which is all a lie, uh, between a geocentric and a heliocentric uh, uh, universe for a rather solar system. We'll talk about that another date. But um, I, I'll send you what I have on uh, on hers, and um, you will um, be able to uh, read it. And we can, if people are interested enough about this, uh, I can certainly do an, a uh, briefing on it. Fair enough. Well, I know our audience Jeff? would be totally interested in, and uh, and that other person that you mentioned as a guest, uh, we would uh, certainly love to entertain that. That would be wonderful. Um, yeah, we do have one more caller here, and this is going to be the last one because I do have a hard stop I got to get to. But God's Rainbow, welcome to Right on Radio. Hey, everybody. Um, so, Chris, I would like to hear a lot more about that Polaris star um and if it is indeed a star i was wondering if it was maybe a portal to heaven perhaps i've so i would like to get more information on that in a future episode um we can do that yeah that would be awesome um when you mentioned before southern portal do you is that the same as the south pole is the south pole a portal and the north pole a portal or is when you mention a southern portal, is that something different? No, um, this is a, a a very unusual topic. Jeff will probably not agree with me, but um, it works like this: Our planet is not a sphere. We've been taught it's a sphere, but it is not. It was once upon a time a sphere, but there was a collision and. That has to do with the planet Tiamat, which it was originally called. And so we are literally the what I call the South Pole is is not truly the South Pole. It's a southern entrance into inner Earth. So I can go on and we'll do one on the uh, 
uh, Polaris, and it's all positive. The person I mentioned before, which Jeff didn't catch the name is, her name is Rosette, R-O-S-E-T-T-E. Her last name is Delacroix, D-E-L-A-C-R-O-I-X. When I worked for the Army uh, in Hawaii, she's in Honolulu. I didn't know her at the time. I regret that, but uh, I'm sure she will do a talk show because she is very spiritual and very religious, and her work, uh, she is the best decoder I've run across in decoding history, in uh, and especially movies. Okay, so we will do one yeah, please on the Polaris. Uh, please, please connect me with Rosetta. That would be wonderful. She sounds like a great guest, and certainly with your endorsement, that would uh, that goes a long way. Well, listen, everyone, I got to end it here. Uh, I appreciate every one of you being here. Uh, don't forget, you can uh, support the military analyst by going to writeonyou.com, and you can get this essay with all the evidence, the pictures, everything, the links that Chris had mentioned is all there. And don't forget to take a stand for liberty by going to mylibertystand.com. And I should say that is for North America only at this point. Hey, thanks, everyone, for listening to Right On Radio. Thank you for Jesse for being here. Thank you, God's Rainbow, for that question. And Debbie from Italy for those wonderful questions as well. God bless each and every one of you. Remember, love your God, love your family, love your neighbor, and make a difference in the community. And, yes, the replay will be up in just moments.